everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. I have another great episode for you today, and I hope you enjoy. If you have the time and the means, I'm asking you to please support this podcast. Ideally, if you could sign up on Patreon and support Lockdown Law for as little as $5 per month, you'll get early access to episodes. I'd really appreciate your support. Again, Lockdown Law on Patreon, and you can join the community. Or you could visit my website, www.lockdownlaws.com, and donate. You can also email me through the website and let me know what's been your favorite episode so far. And finally, if nothing else, I would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today was president of the American Civil Liberties Union, also known as the ACLU, from 1991 to 2008. She was the first woman and the youngest person to ever lead the ACLU. She is a distinguished author of many books. Her 2018 book is titled, Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship. She is a Harvard Law School graduate. and She has dedicated her career to advocate for free speech and has also been such an inspirational figure for women all over the globe. Nadine Strassen, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I'm so delighted to be here, Ian. And in doing the research, is this true? Did Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia attend your farewell luncheon? They both did, as did Justice David Souter. All three of them, very good friends of mine. And I think it's interesting that they represented very different ideological factions, right? A moderate, a conservative, and a liberal. And I think it reflects well on the ACLU, which is staunchly nonpartisan, uh, never taking a position for or against any uh, party or individual or group based on um, their overall ideology, but rather deciding each issue on an issue by issue basis and uh, defending freedoms, even for people who uh, reject our own civil libertarian principles. You know, and their relationship, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it gives me so much hope for the future of this country. I mean, they are at two different ends of the political spectrum. And not only were they friends, I think their family were friends. Um, and it just goes to show that we can be civil and have tough discussions, right? And Justice Scalia, Nino, as he asked me to call him, was a very close friend of mine as well. 
I, I like to joke, not uh, be despite our disagreements, but because of our disagreements, we were invited to debate each other at interesting programs all over the world. So we spent time together in places from London to New Zealand to Hawaii. And as is true for everybody, in addition to the issues where we strongly disagreed, there were also issues where we strongly agreed, right? Uh, and that's a really important point, Ian. I think too much of today's discourse assumes these oversimplified binaries. You're either, you know, a good guy or a bad guy. You know, you've either got the right answers or the wrong answers without the humility and sense of nuance and complexity uh, to understand what has been my experience in my many decades on this planet, uh, that there is nobody I've met or, or encountered um, with whom I do not share at least some strong agreements on issues that are deeply important to both of us and some strong disagreements on issues that are deeply important to both of us. Uh, in fact, I would say that's true for my dear husband and myself, you know, and I like to point, use that as an analogy to people. Do you agree with your spouse or your partner on, on, on everything? Well, then why do you have to agree with a public a figure or official on everything? That's a great point. And you're also an actress, is that right? <laughs> well, that's an exaggeration. My favorite um, odd, interesting undertaking in my long career was back in 2001, shortly after the 9-11 attacks, I was invited, well, and it really related to the 9-11 attacks, I was invited to be the guest star in uh, the Washington DC National Theater's week-long performance of The Vagina Monologues, the award-winning play by Eve Ensler. And the reason I was invited to do that, along with two professional actors, uh, was this. The day after the 9-11 attacks, Jerry Falwell, who was a um, Christian conservative televangelist, was on the show, uh, a TV show of another such person, a name Pat Robertson and and Robertson said, you know, you've got to blame the ACLU for uh, these terrorist attacks because they defend abortionists and uh, lesbian and gay people and uh, people who uh, are advocating for separation of church and state, all these terrible causes. And, and therefore, God's getting his revenge on America because of what the ACLU has done to America. And, and Jerry Falwell said, amen, I agree with that. Eve Ensler was watching it. And uh, she's, oh, and he also attacked us for defending rights of feminists. She's a feminist and her producer was a gay man. And they said, we really have to give a positive platform to the ACLU. So I have to thank Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell for my professional theater debut. Well, I was an actor um, in seventh grade. I was Model the Tailor and Fiddler in the Roof. Oh, you can sing and dance. Although there was a bit of nepotism. My mother was the director at my junior high. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was the, uh, that was the end of my acting career. Although it, it did benefit me, I think, um, in becoming a lawyer, you know, it's good experience to get up there and with public speaking. Um, so the first question I have for you 
Um, I think we've actually already addressed a little bit, but I want to hammer this point down. I want to challenge the idea that I hear quite a bit in the news that some think the ACLU is a branch of the Democratic Party. However, the ACLU has defended conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh, has defended the Second Amendment, and most people would be surprised to learn about the controversial Skokie case. How do you respond to this common misconception, and can you explain to the listeners the Skokie case? Yes, and I will give you an even more current example, the 2017 Charlottesville case. So the ACLU, again, is a nonpartisan organization by virtue of our own corporate documents. Uh, we will absolutely never endorse or oppose any candidate, any official, any political party. We are committed to nonpartisan defense of all fundamental freedoms for everyone. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, you are entitled to certain basic rights. So we are trying to defend the rights that should exist under the U.S. Constitution, civil rights statutes, and so forth. This is exactly what government officials should do, right? To equally defend all rights for everybody, including people whose ideas they reject, right? Uh, is a police officer who happens to uh, vote for Joe Biden uh, not going to provide protection for somebody who is a Trump supporter? Uh, heaven forfend, of course not. So the ACLU tries uh, our best to do the same thing. And uh, the truth is, to this day, since I continue to speak about civil liberties and be identified with the ACLU, uh, we are attacked as much from the left as from the right uh, for taking positions that depart from their ideological preferences. Uh, so the case that you refer to is uh, uh, emblematic. In fact, uh, for many people, if you simply say Skokie, they will even know what you're talking about, even though it's a case that went back to 1977. Uh, it epitomizes not only the ACLU's neutral defense of free speech, even for the thought that we hate, I'm quoting former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, but as that quote indicates, that is the position of the United States Supreme Court, that even if government hates an idea or thinks that it's hateful, even if the idea is completely despised by virtually everybody else in the society except the speaker, that is not a justification for suppressing the speech. If you dislike it, refute it, respond to it, ignore it, um, support those you think it's attacking. And so the ACLU had to put that principle to the test in this dramatic case uh, because Skokie, Illinois is a town near Chicago that had a large population, a large Jewish population, many of whom were Holocaust survivors, closely or closely related to Holocaust survivors. 
we came to the defense of a group of neo-Nazis who deliberately chose Skokie in order to uh, air their Nazi views. Specifically, they wanted to demonstrate in front of the town hall uh, wearing swastikas and Nazi uniforms. And um, it was a, a, an easy winner for the ACLU and the courts of law because what was at stake is what the Supreme Court has called the bedrock principle of our whole system of free speech, viewpoint neutrality. Government must remain neutral with respect to the viewpoint or message or ideas that is being expressed. But so we won in all of the courts, including the United States Supreme Court, but in the court of public opinion, it was not a popular position. Uh, and even among ACLU members, it was not popular to be defending the free speech rights of people who themselves were advocating against our deeply cherished civil libertarian principles of defending full human rights for everybody. Um, so the ACLU actually lost 15% of our members in uh, people who said, yes, we are very strong free speech supporters, but this goes too far even for us. Uh, nonetheless, very shortly after that, we regained the members, maybe not the uh, same people who had resigned, but many people who said, you know, you really are putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak. You really are being true to your principles of civil liberties and free speech for everybody, so we're going to support you. Now, I said that we're continuing to do this uh, and continuing to be attacked from the left. Uh, virtually every time I speak, I, I, I have to uh, defend the ACLU from some uh, understandably concerned, outraged, liberal or progressive uh, who asks, how could you possibly defend Unite the Right when they were demonstrating in Charlottesville in 2017? So my first response, and I, 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 it's I, the same formulation I, I would get with respect to Skokie, how can you possibly defend Nazis? We're not defending the Nazis. We're not defending Unite the Right. We couldn't dis disagree more with their principles. What we are defending is our neutral principle and the neutral principle reflected in the First Amendment, that freedom of speech uh, pertains to every speaker, every idea, no matter how unpopular, no matter how odious. And history has shown that that principle is especially important to defend uh, for the sake of members of minority groups, those who are traditionally oppressed and marginalized, because over the course of history to the present day, it's their views that are the most vulnerable, that are least likely to have majority political support behind them. In fact, just earlier this week, uh, we won a, a somewhat uh, a partial victory so far in the United States Supreme Court, where we're representing one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, DeRay McKesson, uh, who was subject to enormous 
uh, liability that would bankrupt him and Black Lives Matter movement uh, by a police officer who was unfortunately assaulted at a Black Lives Matter demonstration. But D. Ray McKesson had nothing to do with that. And yet the officer is trying to say, you know, uh, impose guilt by association. And unfortunately, that won in the lower courts. Uh, we And I can't remember exactly where the demonstration took place, maybe in Louisiana, somewhere in the Deep South, where Black Lives Matter is a very controversial cause. So uh, for those who care about anti-racist speech, the way to protect it is to shore up the principles um, wherever they are challenged, including when it's in the context of racist speakers. So for those of you who don't know, we just had a close and contested election here in the United States. Um, one thing that's been driving me crazy is when I hear people advocate for secession or basically when, when somebody argues for a state to leave the United States and people on all sides of the political spectrum do this, whether it's, you know, Texans who got upset with Obama or Californians who were upset with Trump. Um, to me, it's kind of being a sore loser and is un-American you know, work hard, change the minds, and there will be a new election in two years with uh, congressional elections that and that could drastically change the political landscape. In my opinion, the only people who benefit from these ideas are foreign governments. Um, is this treason or, or am I being anti-free speech? Is this, do you see this as uh, part of your free speech rights? Well, certainly, you have a free speech right to advocate secession. In fact, the Supreme Court unanimously held way back in 1969 in an ACLU case, I'm proud to say, that you actually have a free speech right to advocate even violent or illegal conduct. The only thing that uh, crosses the line is intentional incitement of imminent lawless or violent conduct that is likely to actually happen imminently. Uh, and I think the kind of advocacy that you're talking about, Ian, is well within the bounds of protected advocacy and far away from unprotected intentional incitement. So I'm just off on that one. I don't know why it drives me so crazy. But you absolutely have a free speech right yeah. to argue against it, to try to persuade people that it's a bad idea, that it's a dangerous idea. Remind them of our original national motto, which I very much prefer to the current one, uh, e pluribus unum, out of many one. I think that is what is so special about this country and a message that cannot be overemphasized, especially today. Yeah, and I think it's just like a lazy way to go about doing things. So I'm not happy with the results, so we should secede. Well, no, the structure is set up. You know, like I said, if you work hard, and you change the hearts and minds and you go out there, you can change the political landscape. You'd be surprised we, on a local level what you can do. 
at, at a local level, it's even easier. But even at a national level, we've seen astonishing transformations on, on a number of issues, some of which are dear to conservatives, some of which are dear to liberals. So uh, and take, for example, the breathtaking uh, progress in the LGBTQ rights movement. Uh, you know, even at the beginning of his presidency, Barack Obama was against same-sex marriage. Hillary Clinton opposed same-sex marriage. Bill Clinton, when he was president, um, uh, uh, supported a ban on on LGBT people in the in the military, or very severe restrictions on them, I should say, under the so-called "Don't Tell, Don't Ask, Don't Tell" policy. So when you had even the leaders of the Democratic Party taking uh, positions against what is now embraced by mainstream. Americans, including Republicans and conservatives, that's really a breathtaking change in a very short time. And I would say, um, conversely, in thinking of um, legal issues, uh, because that victory was ultimately won in the Supreme Court, although uh, there had been legislative changes all over the country. And I think the Supreme Court was definitely influenced by the change in public opinion. Um, the court um, not too long ago, for the very first time in American history, held that the, the Second Amendment, which you mentioned earlier, um, uh, held for the very first time that it protects an individual right to bear arms, something that was a cherished cause for a long time, uh, especially among those who tend to be conservative. And yet, um, it, so progress has been made, and I could give many other examples. I think today we're seeing certainly that every vote counts, right? Every yeah. vote counts. Oh. Uh, but even beyond that, every raising of your voice, every um, going to a demonstration, uh, signing a petition, sending a communication to an elected official uh, definitely has an impact. Yeah, as we talk right now, the election is very close. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the next couple days play out. Who would have thought the West had such significance? Arizona and Nevada might be uh, might be game changers, right? Yes. Okay, so the new frontier for for free speech is social media. Are social media companies subject to First Amendment scrutiny? No, they are not. And in case some of your listeners are not lawyers, let me break down that legalism. Um, and, and this is a point that is just not nearly as well known as it should be. Even some lawyers don't know it, that the First Amendment, with its free speech guarantee, only limits government. So the First Amendment literally says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the press. Uh, the Supreme Court has interpreted that word Congress as meaning any government official at any level of government. So in other words, it says government may not abridge the freedom of speech or of the press. But if you're a private sector actor, whether it's a podcaster like you or social media company like Facebook or uh, a, a mainstream traditional media like Fox News or the New York Times, uh, 
you have no obligation to respect free speech rights of anybody else. Uh, conversely, you have your own First Amendment rights because you're engaged in communication, you're engaged in expression, and a decision that you make about what messages you will air, which ones you won't, which speakers you will host, which ones you won't, that is a matter of your exercising your own editorial discretion, which is strongly protected under the First Amendment. So uh, people just don't get it. And as I said, Ian, lawyers don't get it because there have been so many lawsuits that have been brought against various social media companies and other online platforms by disgruntled people who were kicked off the platform or ha who had certain messages taken down, and they tried to sue under the First Amendment. There have been cases all over the country, and every single one of them, not surprisingly, has uh, been dismissed out of court, and, and I'm not aware of a single exception to that. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't look for some other ways to try to restrain, constrain the uh, basically unfettered power that especially the dominant social media platforms have in deciding who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak, what messages will be allowed and which ones will be blocked, which ones will be allowed without a stigmatizing label, which ones will be put behind behind a stigmatizing label. We see how consequential this is uh, today during the election process and during the COVID process. Uh, every day there are battles and controversies about uh, speakers, including President Trump, including doctors, including um, you know, various public figures who are having their, their accounts shut down or various messages blocked or labeled in a negative way yeah and that's why this episode is so important because it drives me crazy when i hear on the news that oh twitter's violating my first amendment it's like um no they're not they're a private company so um that's a very important point to get across to people i can understand the impetus to say facebook or twitter are violating my first amendment rights because for all practical purposes these companies now are exercising a power that in the past was only exercised by government. They really are controlling the public forums and platforms, which are the places where we exchange ideas and information, not only among ourselves, but with elected officials or people who are running for political office. The United States Supreme Court said that a couple of years ago in a case involving a state regulation of uh, social media, and that was found to violate the First Amendment, because interestingly enough, that, that reinforces the, the fact that, that there are free speech rights um, uh, that the platforms exercise. But in the context of that decision, the Supreme Court just stated flat out, it used to be debatable what were the most important places for the geographically location 
for the exercise of free speech rights. That is no longer debatable beyond any question. The most important places for exercising free speech are the online platforms, in particular social media. So you put the two facts that you and I have been discussing together in, and you really have the worst of both worlds. On the one hand, these companies have huge power the most important power for all practical purposes to control free speech, to either allow it or not allow it on a completely selective basis. On the other hand, we don't have the First Amendment as a tool to constrain how they exercise that power. Worse yet, we don't have other constitutional provisions, which also only apply to the government. I guess on the other hand, if I had to play devil's advocate, um, the best argument that Twitter and other social media companies should be subject to First Amendment scrutiny is this traditional public function uh, exception to state mm -hmm. action. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can make a pretty good argument that that's sort of the new public forum, right? So let me again translate. You're such an excellent lawyer. You're caught up in your legal terminology there. I'm a teacher, so I'm used to explaining, trying to explain legal concepts to non-lawyers. Uh, the state action doctrine is the legal term for the fact that uh, only government is bound by the Constitution. So the term state in that phrase doesn't mean like New Mexico or Nevada. It means state in the sense of government. Only st action by government or by states um, are states as synonymous with government is subject to the Constitution. Private sector, private action is not uh, subject to the Constitution with two exceptions. And the two exceptions have been construed extremely narrowly and even more narrowly by the current Supreme Court, but, but quite narrowly for quite a long time. Uh, and the one exception that you're referring to, Ian, is the so-called public function question. And that it makes common sense when you think about it. If the sector entity is performing a function that traditionally has been performed by government, then that shouldn't be a way for government to do an end run around the Constitution, right? Uh, so if government, and here are some examples where the public function exception has been satisfied. Uh, if the government delegates its um, incarcerative power to a private prison, it can't do an end run around the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishments by using private prisons. Uh, however, the Supreme Court has interpreted that exception in this way. Uh, it only applies to functions that have traditionally exclusively been performed by government. And so providing prisons uh, is something that has traditionally exclusively only been done by government. But uh, providing forums for speech is not something that has traditionally only been done by government. To the contrary, 
until the advent of the internet was done, uh, well, and, and still, uh, right? But even before the internet, uh, the platforms for private speech, uh, uh, for, for, for speech, uh, yes, they did include streets and parks, which were owned by the government, but they also included shopping centers and other buildings that are owned by privately. Um, newspapers and broadcast and cable uh, stations that are also uh, owned by private sectors. So that is, in fact, one of the arguments that's been made in these cases I mentioned. Um, but the arguments have all been rejected, including recently by um, a Supreme Court case that didn't involve social media. It involved cable companies. And um, they were trying to argue that um, by virtue of having a, a a public access cable license from the city of New York, that it should be seen as a, an exception to the state action doctrine and the Supreme Court rejected that argument. So the First Amendment does not apply to social media companies, correct? Me? Well, it doesn't apply in this way because we wanna be very clear. It, yes. it, the First Amendment protects them in their exercise of their free speech rights, including their editorial decisions. The First Amendment does not protect users of Got social it. media companies against them. So they have the benefits of the First Amendment, but not the burdens of the First Amendment. So Twitter can kick off whoever they want. Yes. Okay. And so just from a philosophical standpoint, do you believe that the First Amendment should apply to social media companies? Or do you think the way we have it set up now is Okay. I, I, I strongly support the First Amendment rights of social media companies. I would strongly object to any government attempt to regulate how they um, exercise their editorial judgment. And there are many proposals in Congress now that are seeking to do that in various ways. And I would object to that just as I would object to uh, that kind of regulation of, of any media. Uh, that said, there are, I, 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 what I would like to see is the social media companies exercising their editorial discretion in a way that is consistent with First Amendment free speech values. And I say that uh, in particular with respect to the dominant giant companies where for all practical purposes, people don't really have a choice. If you want to be uh, engaged in public conversations, if you have a business, um, you really have to be engaged on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on the dominant platforms. For the smaller ones, I think it's much less important. And there, you know, in my ideal world, there would just be uh, a large, large, large array of platforms for people to choose among. And the platforms would compete for users by offering a different array of moderation approaches. So one might be, you know, where the free speech platform and we're going to just let all speech that's protected by the First Amendment. Something else could be, no, we're the, you know, uh, religious conservative platform and we're going to uh, only allow uh, speech that comports with our religious values and, and everything in between. But we don't really have that, that choice now because of the dominance of a few players. And therefore, 
I advocate that they should voluntarily adhere to something very close to First Amendment free speech standards, namely uh, the United Nations free speech standards under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And this is an approach that has been advocated over the last several years by um, a number of digital rights experts and organizations, uh, importantly, including the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and uh, an international free speech group called Article 19, which takes its name from the article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and International Convention on Civil and Political Rights. But under both of those, it's Article 19 that protects freedom of expression. And the advantage of arguing for an international free speech standard rather than an American one, is these are global companies. The United States First Amendment is viewed somewhat incorrectly, and I'd like to have a chance to comment on it, somewhat incorrectly viewed as being an outlier in strongly protecting free speech. So there wouldn't be much uh, persuasive leverage in trying to persuade these companies to adhere to First Amendment standards. But when you talk about the international standards, these are treaties that have been ratified by 173 countries out of the 100 something like 190 countries in the world. So it's very persuasive to say um, that there is a very strong global reason why these companies should adopt the standard. And think of how convenient that would be for them from a business perspective, right? They don't have to negotiate with every single government. They don't have to be subject to very strict laws that are being put in by different governments all over the world. Um, they would have some leverage against authoritarian governments that are trying to suppress free speech rights online in their countries. And and um, so that's, and what is not nearly as well known as it should be, Ian, is that these United Nations free speech guarantees have been interpreted in a very speech protective way, very similar to U.S. First Amendment law. And the reason most people don't know that is they hear international law and they understandably think, oh, the law of other countries, or maybe they'll think of regional human rights uh, treaties, such as the European Convention on Human Rights or the American Convention or regional courts, such as the European Court of Human Rights. And it is true that all of those bodies of law are much less speech protective uh, than either American law or United Nations international law. Uh, so that's what I would advocate. And when you think about it, the reason why the social media companies are engaging in content moderation now is not because they've been forced to do it, right? Um, the U.S. government hasn't even tried, or state governments, nobody's even tried to restrict their, their editorial policies, their content moderation policies. They're doing it only because of pressure 
they're being pressured and encouraged by politicians and members of the public to uh, engage in kicking off, taking down certain speakers and certain messages. I wish there would be equally strong, stronger pressure coming from the free speech direction. Hey, we don't want you to take down so much. We want you to be more speech protective. So there are a few of us voices who are doing that. And to their credit, I have to say that uh, Facebook, certainly Twitter, to some extent, have made made uh, some statements that indicate support for human rights. Oh, in fact, uh, Facebook's new oversight board, uh, when they recently uh, launched, um, uh, they said that they were going, their goal was to enforce content moderation policies consistent with United Nations international human rights free speech standards. Yeah, and when you censor speech or kick people off your platform and you drive them underground, it often makes things worse. Um, when people's opinions are well known, you know, you sit down with your family members at the Thanksgiving table and maybe they knock some sense into you, right? <laughs> so I think that's what people don't understand is um, censorship, kicking people off platforms, um, it will have negative consequences. Right. So, I mean, you're making a very good general point, which I made in my book about hate speech in general. And then this year it came out in a new paperback edition with an epilogue that focuses specifically on social media. And I make the same point there that uh, even put aside concern about freedom of speech, individual liberty, and so forth, purely from a pr pragmatic, strategic perspective, it doesn't make any sense to try to restrict hate speech uh, as a way of trying to restrict hatred and discrimination and stereotyping, all of which I so strongly oppose. Uh, but in fact, the track record of these laws around the world and throughout history to the present day is that they are ineffective at best and counterproductive at worst for many reasons, including the one that you mentioned. The messages are not gonna go away. They're just gonna go elsewhere, where as you say, it's harder to refute them. And from a law enforcement perspective, it's also harder to monitor to look for actual plans of uh, or threats of actual illegal conduct. And, and that's where we should be aiming. Uh, our goal should be to aim at the underlying thought, right? And you don't do that by censorship. You do that through education, information, persuasion, other forms of what are often called counter speech. And if you're trying to uh, eliminate or reduce discriminatory conduct, including discriminatory violence, you do that through anti-discrimination laws, through enforcing anti-hate crime laws, through preventing actual acts of, of violence. And we haven't done nearly as good a job on that front as, as we should. You know, going after the speech is such a superficial, quick fix that doesn't really fix anything. Yeah. And so this case, the Knight First Amendment Institute versus Trump, this is a very significant case involving a social media company. I think that case involved Twitter, right? Yes. Um, could you explain that case to the listeners and its implications? Yes. 
and it's a very important case, but it's important to note that there are many, many, many similar cases all over the country against uh, various that involving various social media companies that are hosting platforms for uh, public officials. So this one is uh, att attention grabbing because the public official in question is Donald Trump. And uh, specifically on his uh, Twitter account, uh, he admitted to kicking off certain users because he disliked the viewpoints critical of him or his policies um, that they aired in commenting on his Twitter feed. And so he straightforward admitted to what would be a clear violation of that bedrock viewpoint neutrality principle if he were acting in his government capacity, right? That state action doctrine again. Um, and, and note that here's the issue. Nobody is arguing that Twitter as a whole uh, is engaging in state action, but when a particular government official creates a Twitter account and uses it for official purposes, that particular account becomes state action, which is bound by the First Amendment. And so the issue in this case and in all of the other cases uh, where, because government officials all over the country are have Twitter accounts and other social media accounts, and many of them are kicking off particular users who say things that the public officials object to, usually critical of their policies. And in every situation, the question comes down to pretty much a factual question. Um, uh, looking at all of the facts and circumstances about this particular account, is it in fact an official account or is it in fact a private one? And Trump had a few reasons why he argued that his Twitter account should be considered to be private because he had started it. Uh, the main reason was because he had started it before he became president of the United States. Uh, but there are ways that you can limit who has access. You can uh, limit access only to uh, specific friends and families. Uh, another factor is what are the subjects that are discussed. There was absolutely no debate that uh, Trump had used that account to make many official policy announcements, including announcements of uh, appointments to government positions and um, policy positions. So um, it, both the lower court and the uh, appellate court uh, have held that Trump was acting in an official capacity and therefore was bound by the First Amendment, including the viewpoint neutrality principle, and therefore that he violated uh, the Constitution when he kicked off those users. The Trump administration has sought uh, review by the United States Supreme Court. I say sought review because again, for the non-lawyers, I think everybody probably knows that uh, it's very, very iffy whether the Supreme Court has complete discretion, almost complete discretion. In this case, it has complete discretion whether to take the case or not. 
Um, and, and maybe they would because there are a lot of, but, but actually maybe they wouldn't for this reason, Ian. Um, there's been, as far as I know, unanimity among the lower courts on these cases. And the Supreme Court usually uh, reserves one of the very few slots on its docket to resolve controversies and conflicts among the lower courts. Yeah, and to get to technical with that case, um, the it wasn't the Supreme Court. It was that was it the Eighth Circuit Court. That uh, this case was the Second Circuit, based in New York. But there have been cases uh, all in circuits all over the country. Yeah, so the Second Circuit decision in this uh, Knight First Amendment Institute versus Trump case made a distinction between a block and a mute. So what uh, President Trump did was he, I guess, blocked some people and they said, that's a no-no. Um, on the other hand, you can mute somebody um, and they said that the government doesn't have to listen, but they have to allow you to speak. I don't have Twitter, so I don't know if I necessarily- yeah, I, I must admit I don't either, but I read both opinions by both courts and I've read some of the others. and. Um, it, he certainly has the right not to listen to the, the, the right of freedom of speech really comes down to individual freedom of choice. You can choose what to say and what to not say, what to listen to and what to not listen to. But a feature, a really important feature of Twitter is the uh, ongoing conversation that can take place among those who are uh, subscribing to Trump's Twitter feed. And then there are comments and then there can be conversations among the commenters. And what Trump was doing was making it impossible for the, his critics that he kicked off to engage in, not making it impossible, but making it, because there are workarounds, but the workarounds were very awkward uh, for them to engage an ongoing conversation with all of his followers, which is losing a major free speech opportunity, by the way, not only for the seven individuals themselves, but uh, just as you have the right to choose to convey a message, you have a right to choose to receive a message. And so uh, other people who were on Trump's Twitter feed were being deprived of the opportunity to hear expression by those who were blocked. Well, and you made a really good point that on his Twitter feed, he's making big announcements, you know, like cabinet members. And I think before it's even sometimes he tweets before it even gets out to, you know, the big news outlets. So um, when you get blocked, I guess there's a significant delay in receiving that information. Yes. Yeah. Interesting case. So what are the limits of online free speech? Um, what are some of the unprotected areas of free speech? When you say, what are the limits of online free speech? And then you followed it up, recognizing that they're the same as the limits in any forum. Uh, and I essentially, uh, I, I'll give you two different ways of describing the limits. One is called the emergency test that I already said government may never suppress speech solely because of disagreement or with or dislike of its viewpoint or its message. 
what's sometimes called the content of the speech. Government has to be content neutral and viewpoint neutral. But when you get beyond the content of the speech and you look at its context, uh, the Supreme Court has said that when speech in a particular context directly causes or threatens certain imminent, specific, serious harm, then it may be censored. Uh, and in other words, the speech presents an emergency. There is no way short of uh, suppressing the speech to prevent that harm. Another way this is often described is with a term that you used earlier, Ian, term that lawyers often use, um, strict scrutiny. Uh, that there is a presumption that any restriction on speech is unconstitutional, but the government can overcome that presumption um, through a what's called strict scrutiny. Think of it as taking a hard look. The court will ask whether, or the government has to prove to the court, that the restriction on speech is necessary to promote a goal of compelling importance and no less restrictive alternative will suffice no restriction on speech no lesser restriction on speech so that's just another way of saying it really has to be necessary to uh, protect against grave harm or emergency to make it a little bit more concrete the Supreme Court has recognized a few categories of speech that restrictions that will satisfy the emergency test or judicial strict scrutiny. Uh, one is a, uh, I, I think I already referred to it. Um, in, yes, I did already refer to it. Intentional incitement of imminent violence where the violence is likely to happen imminently. So not just advocacy, uh, but something beyond that. Uh, another example uh, that satisfies the emergency test or strict scrutiny is called true threats. And that's to distinguish it from the way we loosely use the word threat in everyday speech. I feel, I've heard students say, I feel threatened by the fact that Donald Trump is giving a speech on my campus or to take something for the opposite end of the ideological spectrum. I feel threatened by the fact that Antifa is going to be demonstrating. That is not enough to suppress the speech. A true threat that is punishable is where the speaker is aiming at a, a particular individual or a small group of individuals and means to instill a reasonable fear on the part of the targeted individuals that they will be subject to harm. And reasonable fear is an objective test, not a subjective one. Uh, so if somebody who's really thin-skinned or easily frightened, that, that's not gonna be enough to punish the speaker. And note that the speaker doesn't have to intend to actually carry out the harm, but just intend to instill the fear. And it, that's enough because that really does harm. If you have a reasonable fear 
that somebody's going to attack you. That's going to uh, chill your freedom of movement and, and your freedom of speech. So the next case I want to discuss is the Citizens United case. And hopefully you could give us a, a brief background on that case. Um, it's so significant. Um, on one hand, I've always been an advocate for free speech, but you can make a pretty good argument that this is damaging our democracy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Citizens United is so badly misunderstood, and, and, and I understand why, because it is almost always misdescribed whenever it's described in the media. I think uh, basically it has become synonymous in most people's minds with whatever they don't like about the campaign finance system. And I think most people assume, uh, picture whatever big, bad, evil, multinational corporation they hate, you know, that's doing pollution and underpaying workers and whatever are the most dastardly deeds that could be done, pouring money into political campaigns and uh, corrupting politicians. I think that's what most people um, assume is going on here. But in fact, uh, the law that the Supreme Court struck down made it a crime for any corporation, even single person corporations, which, you know, lawyers, many lawyers practice as, um, as, as professional corporations, even tiny mom and pop businesses that are incorporated, not for profit corporations are included. Uh, just about every philanthropy that I know, uh, NGO that I know, certainly including the ACLU, is a not-for-profit corporation. All of us were covered by this law um, that the Supreme Court struck down in Citizens United. Uh, and the law also applies to labor unions, right? So a lot of labor unions uh, oppose the law as well. Uh, what the law did that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional was to prohibit every single one of those organizations from spending their own money to uh, take out so-called issue ads, advocating on issues during the crucial period running up to an election. Now, I already told you that the ACLU, by our own corporate charter, is staunchly nonpartisan. We have our, we would violate our own corporate documents if we took out an ad for or against a political candidate. But you better believe that we're taking out ads on issues all the time. And under the law that the Supreme Court struck down, uh, it became a crime just to mention the name of a candidate for federal office uh, in your ad. And so I remember at the time, the, it was shortly after uh, 2000, uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks and a terribly uh, terrible law violating a lot of civil liberties called the Patriot Act had been passed. And uh, the ACLU was calling upon then President Bush, who was running for reelection, 
uh, to um, to to veto the act or to do what he could to cut back on its scope. And we were also calling on everybody who was running for the House or the Senate to repeal the Patriot Act. And, you know, so you take out a broadcast ad saying, Senator so-and-so vote against the Patriot Act. Uh, and that became a federal crime. As president of the ACLU, I would have faced a five-year prison term for doing that. Now, if that's not protected free speech, I don't know what is. And I, the Supreme Court itself, in its Citizens United opinion, mentioned the ACLU. It mentioned uh, the Sierra Club, uh, mentioned a few organizations across the ideological spectrum to make clear that the, the speech that was being suppressed went far beyond so-called big bad corporations. And uh, to make it even more complicated, there was an exception for big bad media corporations or corporations that were big enough to, you know, part of the multinationals uh, included a media outlet. So it was very discriminatory in terms of who did get to spend money to advance their messages and, and who didn't. Uh, so I think there are plenty of problems with the current campaign finance system, but the law that was struck down in Citizens United was may have been well-intentioned, uh, but I think it did more harm than good. The reason I say it may have been well-intentioned, Ian, uh, is it really functioned, as, as these laws tend to do, as an incumbents protection act? Think about it. I mean, there's not much motivation on the part of people who are voting for these laws in Congress to make it easier for opponents to run against them. And by definition, the more name recognition you have, you've got access to a lot of privileges when you're a member, uh, already an elected official, there's the franking privilege, you get free mail, you get a lot of um, earned media. Um, so if you can make, you don't have to raise as much money as a challenger in order to be reelected. And I think that's something that, again, there was a complete mismatch. People who oppose Citizens United say, well, we want to make it easier for challengers to uh, get elected. Well, that law did not make it easier for challengers to get elected. Quite the contrary. Well, let me maybe ask a better question. Um, it just seems to me that there's so much money that's getting dumped into politics. In your mind, would it be unconstitutional to limit corporate spending versus spending of a U.S. citizen? Well, first of all, if the problem is too much money, quote unquote, then why would it matter where the money comes from, right? If you think that there should be less money spent, then it should there should be less money spent by by everybody. Uh, and I think that I'm not sure what exactly the problem is with too much money being spent. I think that uh, you know if it's being spent to advance messages about the candidates and about the issues so that more of us can see those messages, that's a very important form of free speech in a democracy. And people who are running for office should have the freedom to choose to you know, spend as much money as they care to, uh, to advance their messages. I'm very skeptical as to 
what the impact is. I haven't followed this closely, but every time I take a look, it seems there's no correlation uh, between how much people spend and, and whether they're likely to be elected or not. And uh, people being bombarded by campaign ads don't seem to be likely to uh, have their have their views affected. And by the way, a lot of people say to, say to me, well, but you know, why would corporations spend so much money on advertising their products or services if it didn't work? The truth is there are a lot of studies that show that most of that money is wasted too. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, maybe we could, and, and this is something that you would think in the era of social media where it becomes much less expensive to run a campaign that there would not need to be so much money raised. But I think of one of my own members of Congress from the state of New York, the famous AOC, uh, her first campaign, she was uh, did it extensively through social media and uh, challenged a, a long-term incumbent successfully, not only through social media, but famously going door to door, the old fashioned kind of campaigning. Um, as far as I know, she was very popular and didn't seem to be in any danger of losing her seat. And yet there was a record amount of money that she raised and spent in her reelection campaign. And that's kind of, I, I do share your thought that there might be better uses for that money. Yeah. Well, um, my last question for you is a, a bit overbroad, um, but do your best. Given the, the current lockdowns and all the governmental restrictions, do you think some of them have gone too far? And has the ACLU participated in any lawsuits? Um, in this arena? I can't say that I've followed all, all the ACLU lawsuits because we're a very large organization with uh, offices in every state, multiple offices in every state, and we've been so busy. I know that we have certainly spent a lot of time um, uh, challenging restrictions on protests, some of which may be linked to the COVID uh, situation, uh, restricting the number of people who can demonstrate. Uh, but I'm, I'm not aware of other specific um, can, uh, challenges, whether the ACLU has brought them or not. I certainly am aware of challenges that have been brought by others. And uh, the government, of course, should not have unlimited power to, there are two issues here uh, that have come up in the lawsuits. Uh, number one is which branch of government, which agencies of government have the power. And in particular, a lot of these restrictions, if not all of them, have been issued by executive officials governors, mayors, and so forth, presidents. Uh, and in our system of checks and balances and divided governments, there are really serious issues about limits on executive power, right? The framers were very concerned about potentially replicating a monarchy in the presidency uh, and therefore wanted to make sure that most pow policy-making power was lodged in the legislative branch. Uh, so that's one issue. Has executive power gone too far? And I, I know a couple of courts have, have held yes. Um, and then a second issue is, um, do these restrictions satisfy, now I get to use this term that I defined earlier, judicial strict scrutiny. 
I think everybody would agree that even a restriction on freedom of assembly, a First Amendment right, or freedom of religion, there, there have been cases about this, um, is pre, it's presumptively unconstitutional. It's not automatically unconstitutional, but to overcome that presumption, government has the appropriately heavy burden of showing that the particular restriction is necessary in order to protect public health and no less restrictive me measure would suffice so it's a very fact specific evidence-based inquiry and i know in different factual circumstances courts have come out differently on some of these restrictions and people are vigorously exercising their you know asserting their constitutional rights and going to court well said well, thank you so much for your lifelong work advocating for free speech and for being so generous with your time. I really oh, thank you so much, Ian. I was really uh, privileged to be on your podcast. Have a good evening. Take care. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.